Welcome to episode number two. I am your host, Sebastian Engstrom, and today, Jimmy Vesterheim, the CEO and founder of The Human Aspect, is joining us. This company and what they do has impacted me, I think, more than he ever knows. And what he's yet unaware of is we will be donating 1% of our revenue now going forward to the human aspect because of the change that they do in this world. They interview people, ordinary people, about the most challenging things they've been through in their life and how they got through it. The impact that this has. I highly encourage you to experience this yourself at thehumanaspect.com. It has truly and deeply moved me, helped me heal, and I am confident it will do so with so many others as well. So, this has been a true joy and a blessing to have this conversation with Jimmy and to now share this with you. His story is just phenomenal and how he got to create and now share this beautiful message and help be a conduit of so many people to help heal so many people out here in this world. So thank you very much for tuning in. And before we jump into it, I highly encourage you to leave a five-star review. Hi. <laughs> so this healing message can help more people click follow subscribe five stars takes you five seconds give a review love it i'm very appreciated to have you here and uh let's get into it as high performers we get after it but this is taxing on our nervous system who we are and how we show up this is a breathing exercise to connect you back to your heart to your soul, to your truth, and to send that back to someone else. So we're gonna put one hand on your heart, one in your stomach. You're gonna close your eyes, not if you're in a car. And we're gonna breathe in 10 times. And we're gonna do it for three seconds in, three seconds out. And as you say this, you say, I love you and your name quietly and then out saying in the next five, I forgive you and your name as you breathe in and out. And they're gonna send one person love. We're gonna start in three, two, one. Breathe in. Breathe out.
longer now. I can imagine one person in front of you, anyone that comes to mind, and you're gonna see the biggest smile on this person's face. This person is just gonna be shining and beaming, and having the most amazing day of their life, and laughing. Anything positive, everything they've ever imagined, all of it has come in their way. Everything has been forgiven, and they truly love themselves and everyone else around them. You see them impacting people, sharing smiles, sharing light, sharing gratitude, and the most beautiful gifts. And the most beautiful gift. It's just them being them, and you being you. Jimmy Westerheim, incredible to have you on the podcast. I am so, so excited to have you here. The human aspect has been the source that I've taken the most inspiration from with the creation of the Safina Code the vulnerability, the authenticity, and just the pure honesty of uh, people opening up. And um, yeah, just to see what you've cultivated and what you've created is truly sensational. Um, it's one thing as men, especially, it helps me feel my feelings every time I watch a video. And it, it takes quite a bit because it's so easy, especially as, as high performers or elite performers um, and as men, we just push feelings to the side. It becomes a distraction. And, um, but it's such a key part. And, and the more we push that away, usually the more disconnected we get. And uh, you can do it short term, but long term, not sustainable. Um, so thank you for the healing that you're presenting to so many people, including myself. Uh, yeah, Jamie, thank you for being here today. Your pleasure. Thank you for uh, asking me to join. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like I said before, this is, there are many different people who have influenced and shared an incredible message. And I think even working with the team that I'm working with, and when they saw this, um, they were like, wow, this is truly unique. Um, so how, how did you even, it, it takes a lot of confidence or even being brave because I haven't seen anything like this out there. Um, I don't know if you want to start with with diving into how the human aspect came about, or maybe it, it comes with you telling us about you, and maybe even who you were as a child, like, because this, this is deeply rooted. You share an incredible, empowered, even vulnerable video, and anyone who, who hasn't seen it, go to thehumanaspect.com or even their Instagram um, or go on the webpage and the landing page will show you an incredible um, connecting video of Jimmy. But yeah, if, if you don't mind sharing wherever you feel like it all started. Now the big question is how long do you have? <laughs> A long time. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, the human aspect <clears throat> foundation today is of course behind what you're describing is uh, the life experience library where we have 500 video interviews at the moment that are in-depth uh, interviews where people like myself share 
how we have managed to deal with our toughest challenge and how we have managed to overcome it and what we have learned. So it's 30 to 60 minute uh, video interviews of people from all over the world. I think we have uh, 90 different countries for now and we have had um, users in every single country. And as you say, it's uh, maybe extra vulnerable. The interviews are extremely open and uh, maybe to the kind of to the level where most people have never heard this before either maybe only psychologists or really really close friends that are very open with each other have ever spoken like this and now it's out there uh, in the world and that started as you guessed with obviously my own story um i grew up on the countryside like uh, i guess it's the same in sweden and in many countries so uh, there was 500 people only so everybody knew everybody a tiny little uh, town and I was different I, I wasn't necessarily different because I looked different I was different because I acted differently and thought differently probably in a way where the challenges that I was faced with for example my body, biological father didn't want anything to do with me in the beginning so I was faced with having to think as a quite older or grown-up person at a very young age which of course separate you from the norm of macho culture or being a boy in the countryside. And I was raised by very strong women, my grandmother, my aunt and my mother. So very quickly, I, I, I just felt different. So I was bullied quite heavily for, for years. I felt alone, even though I was very active and had ADHD. So it was probably difficult to, to see and to catch because I wasn't the stereotypical the kid that was lonely and sitting alone in the corner. I was super active everywhere and always with people, but I was still lonely, <clears throat> which is uh, quite a normal thing going forward today, suddenly. So when you said you were bullied, um, <clears throat> when, you, when you described yourself as being strong and your, your, uh, and your mother, your aunt, and your grandmother raising you, and actually what comes to mind right, or not, right, right away was, um, it's actually Pitbull. Pitbull, the, the singer, he has a very similar story, and it was the same thing. Very, those three women, exactly the three same women, made him who he was. Um, but it almost seems like, well, that would have almost made you more resilient and even not bully. But what, what was it? What was it that they had any reason to bully you for? The countryside being a little bit vulnerable and open on the emotional side was obviously not popular. So bullied for that. And then you query very quickly given the nickname or being bullied for being gay, even though I wasn't, there's nothing wrong with that, of course. And at one point I wish I was because then at least I could have jumped into a label and into a box mm. that people uh, figured out. And for me, I was basically in between. And at the same time I had ADHD, so I was everywhere and nowhere. Of course, I had a lot of frustration, which of course probably made it difficult for me to communicate with people my age. And I was of course uh, bullied as well for being a nerd in school. <laughs> I was very good in school. So then that wasn't popular in the countryside. And I managed to, to be chubby as well in, in the middle of all of this. So then that just gave me another beautiful nickname. But all in all, the main problem was basically being bullied for being strange. I guess there's a lot of people that have felt that, that they weren't just, they weren't fitting in like, with the norm. 
And when I was 13 years old in Norway, when you're 13 to 16, you go into Norwegian high school, which is similar to many countries. And then, of course, you go from one small town to a little bit bigger place, so there's more people. So I hoped that this would be better. But sadly for me, it wasn't. And I ended my relationship with my dad at that point, my biological father that I had seen from like six, seven until I was 13. He was an alcoholic and went through some psychological abuse and, and neglect. So I, I cut it when I was 13. I kind of had enough. And at the same time, my mom got the message that she had uh, the diagnosis of, of uterus cancer, even though touch wood, she's, she's alive today and, and things are, are good, but we didn't know that at the time. So I, I normally share the very tough story of me sitting in the tree when I was 13 years old, planning my own suicide at that point. I had just gotten enough. I was, I was tired of, of life. I was tired of challenges and I didn't really see any progress uh, or anywhere that this could end positively at that point. And luckily for me, uh, I was so scared of failing, talking about high, <laughs> high performance. I was so hmm. scared of failing to commit suicide that I wanted to use the method where I was sure to succeed, which is of course to jump from, from high enough location or high enough distance than just pure physics. But I had to go then to the neighboring town or to Oslo, the capital, to be able to find somewhere that was tall enough. That gave me a week. And the same women, uh, my grandmother, managed to catch that something was off. So she asked me as the first person how I was doing in everything with my mom and things that was going on. And I managed to kind of open up a little bit, not, not fully, because I didn't even have the words to describe what I was feeling. It was just chaos and darkness and lack of feeling which is the dangerous part i was just numb so <clears throat> luckily for me um things got a little bit better that week so i didn't do it um when the week passed and i fully intertwined my personality into sports at that point that was the only place where i was only judged by my performance and not who I was, which was perfect for me at the time. I had ADHD, a huge need to impress the people around me, my own dad, and of course, my, the people bullying me. And I was quite athletic as well. Can't see that on a podcast, but now I'm 190 tall today and quite athletic. So this was perfect. So I performed and it was the only place where I wasn't bullied. So I got my little breathing space for at least 90 minutes for football or 60 minutes for basketball. So I kind of fully connected my, my life worth or my self-worth into performance. So if I did good in school or at sports, my life was great. If I didn't, I went from really feeling fairly confident to feeling nothing and there was nothing in between which was kind of my major challenge growing up and I managed to go to athletes college when I was 16 that was kind of my life goal for the next three years after I was planning my my suicide to get away from town in a classical move away from this small town you know there's a lot of people who have felt that I guess and start over which I did, and uh, that kind of slowly turned my life into becoming better. 
And <clears throat> when I was finished athletes college, I got mononucleosis, the kissing disease, which made it possible or impossible for me to continue my career. So I went no, no. into, yeah. yeah. And I went into uh, the special forces. It's mandatory at the time in Norway. So, so why, what is it that made you unable to continue after getting that? Just uh, directly. So I potentially could have continued after, but then I jumped into the army instead, which is mandatory at the time when you mm -hmm. finish uh, college. Mm -hmm. So I went in there and of course, again, I was so stuck in wanting to get rid of the label of being weak or strengthening the label of being the strong person that for me going into the army special forces was the perfect place to kind of prove to the world that i was a man that i was tough that i wasn't what i had been bullied for when i was growing up so subconsciously all of these things were going on this was obviously not something i was thinking reflectively around when i was younger i just jumped into it thinking this was cool and this is what i wanted to do to prove myself and I went through, I was uh, among the last two candidates and I ended up um, going four months into the training, completing things. And then I broke my ankle completely. And then I had to uh, get another opportunity to do something else where they gave me being a rescue diver in the Coast Guard, in the Bering Sea, not in the North Pole. Another opportunity to do something brave and, and macho-like, right? So went there, but now I didn't know what to do with life. So I ended up studying shipping out of a bit of a coincidence. I come from a poor kind of normal working class, lower class family in the countryside. And I lived right next to the ocean and I was now at a ship and a friend of mine was studying shipping in Oslo. So I thought, yeah, let's try it. Went in there and loved it. So I was really engaged for a full year, even with my ADHD, not a problem at all in school. I was the top performer in class. And then the head of one of the biggest companies in the world at the time came to have a talk at school. All the kids were, or all of us were really excited to hear this like super CEO talking to us, you know, just to meet him. Everybody wanted to get two minutes with this guy. And he asked my teacher when we were done, he said, you have any talented young people because we're growing so fast we want to have a young person coming on into our operations team that was kind of golden opportunity for everybody obviously and and i was lucky to be the top of my class so i was recommended and suddenly three months later i was uh, offered a job in the age of 21 for one of the biggest companies in the world a little bit out of the blue and I was dead determined to be the first person in my family to get a bachelor's degree. So I was very set to continue my, my school. So it was almost, I wanted to say no, but of course I, I couldn't do that. And I ended up in shipping again, <clears throat> very young, very different than everybody else. 10 years younger. I didn't drink because of my father. So obviously shipping is a very, um, alcohol celebration or kind of focused business like finance and, and business in general and <clears throat> seven years into that I continue working and improving and I kind of rose to the ranks I was sent to Singapore 
as an expat, kind of living the dream life of, of all my friends, I guess. We kind of became a small little local hero in the countryside, you know, the, the dream of the guy who came from the small place, went even abroad and, and did big things. And <clears throat> suddenly, six months into that, I played a football match because I still performed uh, sports at quite a high level. And I shattered my spine and broke most of the nerves to my right leg. So I ended up uh, in the hospital, quite an emergency big accident in, in Singapore. How? That's significant for soccer. That's for soccer, right? Now. Yeah. Yeah. How does that even happen? Do you mind describing that? <laughs> Good question. Um, he probably, I've been struggling with the over flexible joints uh, my, my whole life. So it's probably happened over, over time and the, the game was probably just a releasing factor. But I then ended up in the hospital and 40 hours in, I was uh, very, I will never remember sitting in the hallway after talking to the surgeon, the lead surgeon that said, you have to have surgery and that you were not sure that this will ever heal. We're not sure that you will ever do sports again. And we're not even sure how this will go. So then, of course, for me, that was very dramatic. And I remember sitting there and asking myself the questions because this was probably the first time in my life that I'd ever stopped because I was so eager in doing new things to prove that I was good enough, subconsciously, of course, that I'd never stopped to reflect about anything ever. And this now I had to. And I remember asking myself the question, what do I do now? Like, why am I here? Why am I in shipping? Who am I without sports? Still, I was working in shipping, but I was still known to be the sports guy. So this was my complete identity. And like I said, when I was a kid, my identity and self-worth kind of merged into performance. So if I didn't perform, I was nothing uh, in my own head. <clears throat> And that's where, of course, like most humans do when we go through something dramatic, we go from one end to another. So I ended up doing six months recovery in Singapore because I wasn't allowed to move um, until then. And I had 12 months uh, recovery in Norway and I quit shipping and ended up um, completing uh, my bachelor's in leadership and communication that I had started uh, part time. And I went to Doctors Without Borders. So I went from the capitalistical realm to Doctors Without Borders, like classical going to Bali to get rid of uh, stress kind of reaction, you know, the human, human yeah. reaction. So you, that was almost a year and a half, what it sounds like, of recovery. Is that correct? That's right. What, what, was, what, was, that, what was that like, like on a month-to-month <laughs> -month basis? Like, do you mind describing that period? That was... The fascinating part that I'm describing quite often when I'm having talks is that for me as a athlete and a former top athlete, it was the physical part wasn't a problem. I had a plan. I had fantastic physios. I actually went through 1150 hours of training in 2014 and almost 650 hours of treatment, which is insane at that time. But that wasn't the problem. The problem for me was the mental part of it. Uh, suddenly, I was a former top swimmer 
that had to walk back and forth in a swimming pool together with 60-year-old Chinese ladies in Singapore. And that was the maximum of my performance. So suddenly I was struggling to even get by the day because everything was so weakened in my head. I was just not capable of doing the things that made me feel good about myself anymore, which was, of course, maybe the toughest part. And like I said, admitting to myself that <clears throat> I had allowed my father and the people that bullied me to deprive me of my own self-worth. I realized that during the six months in Singapore where I had a lot of time alone because I didn't have any family or friends there. So I was alone for the first time, like I said, in maybe ever. And I was uh, given a lot of time to reflect around these questions. And that's when I realized the things I'm saying now. I didn't know this at that point at all. And that's so, when it really started getting tough to find answers to these questions. And, and what was that to find those answers? Is that what kept you going on a day-to-day -day basis when it, it was so challenging? On a day-to-day -day basis, it was my competitive mindset that kept me going because I remember when the surgeon said that uh, I'm not sure you will ever recover from this uh, injury and he said that I've, he had never had a patient with a below 50 with this kind of injury and he had never had a patient who fully recovered and I remember thinking, great, I will be the first one. <laughs> so Again, the competitiveness of things, right? Yeah. Trying to prove myself. So. I was extremely determined from the second I woke up after surgery. I, I, even though things were extremely up and down and very tough and I was very alone, I still had um, a fundament and a foundation of a very deep motivation to prove once again that I can overcome anything in this element. I, I can't do top level sports anymore, but I'm still in better shape than most of my friends in the sense of walking fast on a mountain or or jogging lightly or something like that so mm -hmm. so i managed to to recover very fast much faster than the surgeons had ever anticipated and that was of course because of my background as well so i had a certain level of um, of course uh, athleticism at that time so i was able to to handle the the amount of training that i needed but day to day I was extremely focused on progress. That was the only thing that mattered to me, progress. And so you spent six months in a hospital. Was that what it was like? Uh, it was six months uh, locked in the apartment. So going yeah. to the physio and back and forth. So I was kind of confined, <laughs> confined in the apartment and the physio basically. And what was the rest of the time then, the 12 months after that, coming back to Norway? You said you're studying in the same time? Yeah, I was doing full recovery here. So it was a lot of physio training um, exercises and I was studying at the same time. So I had to do uh, one and a half year in, in 10 months or I wanted to, to finish so that I could uh, go to Doctors Without Borders. And my first mission was Afghanistan for a year. So... <laughs> yet again um another opportunity for me to so i wasn't fully gotten rid of this trying to prove myself vibe you know it's a, even though you realize something is going on subconsciously it's not like you can change your personality in five seconds so now looking back i can see that that was yet again another 
element of trying to prove myself as worthy. It was a massive challenge. I was given a very high position in a very young age again and into a completely different country than, than what I'm used to. Even though at that point I had traveled to a lot of uh, tough countries when because uh, each year of the seven years in shipping, I took a one month vacation and I worked at orphanages and projects around the world in like North Korea and Ghana and Nepal and different places. So I was used to tough countries, but I had never been to somewhere that was an active war zone like uh, Afghanistan, which was extremely tough in that sense. What made you <clears throat> do these voluntary projects from the very beginning? I've always had a sense of wanting to help people and being very curious to learn because ever since I was a kid growing up in a small place, I remember looking at the old school globes, you know, and the, and the maps and uh, documentaries and being very into the African continent and uh, especially and South America and Asia kind of history of it and the differenceness because I didn't feel like I fit it in. So I think I was looking for, a truth or a confirmation that there was places around the world that was different. So maybe if I found a place, I would fit in. I think that was what I was thinking as a kid, but in general, I'm extremely curious to the point where I, uh, my mom was feeling a bit <laughs> ashamed every time she was taking me around in the countryside. You know, I was always asking people questions that made her blush up. <laughs> so, mm. so I guess I kept my childish uh, curiosity. Do you mind describing some of these experiences? Uh, I mean, one particularly that stands out is North Korea. I, well, majority of people will never go there. Like, do you mind going into some of these experiences and what what they've been like, and even what you've, yeah, what you got from them, and uh, vice sure. versa? Yeah. I think one of the most important things for me going into North Korea um, and Afghanistan, for that matter, was to actively try to have a objective mind when I went in because I have always tried to challenge myself to see things my own way and not allow other people to tell me a narrative of, of what is going on in the country or how the people are or how their culture or their religion is so obviously going into North Korea that's the harshest narrative in the world I would assume <clears throat> uh, so I was very into using my curiosity to see it myself. And I think I managed as well as you can, I guess. And I went in there and what I saw was a very poor country, uh, not even close to the poorest one I've seen. And I was able to travel quite a bit around, obviously with a guide. Um, and so, I, for, um, for perspective, do you mind sharing the countries that come top of mind that you've been to? So you give the listeners uh, kind of a view. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've been to Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan. So all the stands around <laughs> Afghanistan. And I've been to Laos, Cambodia, South Korea, North Korea, China, Japan. So a lot of Asia. And I've also been to Australia, New Zealand, Vanuatu Islands, which is kind of like Fiji. I've been to, and I've been living as well for a short period in, in Ghana. And I went to Uganda, Zambia, uh, South Africa, Mozambique, uh, Sierra Leone. 
and then Nepal, Bhutan, and of course some European countries. And I've uh, been to Canada, the US. I've been to 50 plus countries and I've lived in eight, I think, so far. Yeah. Which, which ones have you lived in? Uh, it was uh, Ghana and of course Singapore, Norway, Afghanistan, um, Turkey, Syria, and uh, Greece. This was uh, Doctors Without Borders and Nepal, actually. Uh, as well <laughs> so it's been a few uh, few different places you could say and i think we'll circle back on that later but yeah you're describing yeah. north korea so we can jump back to that yes um yes yeah, so it's a poor country uh, no doubt about it and it's a country that is under massive uh, control in the sense that it reminds me of the former Soviet states that I've been to and I've been to quite a lot of them and it reminded me a little bit about Russia without comparing too much which is not so strange obviously considering and it reminds me a little bit about China in the sense how you see posters uh, in the streets but people were like any other place you saw credibly kind people and myths like uh, the people believing that they had won the World Cup in 2010 and stuff like that, that oh. that's very far from true. Mm. Uh, because obviously, like in any country, even though they don't have an internet, they have ways of getting information from Chinese radio or stuff like that. So the kids I talked to, they knew about Slatan, they knew about Messi, they knew <laughs> about Ronaldo. So, <clears throat> oh, okay. so it, it wasn't as kind of downgrading, deprived, or lack of knowledge, as you would think. But of course, it was it's quite a massive control, no doubt about it. Uh, obviously, I didn't see any working camps or stuff like that. We wouldn't be allowed even, probably, if, uh, if we went near. So I have no idea about that. That's probably, uh, probably true, but I've never seen it, so I can't say. And I went to school to have an English class, actually, for, <laughs> for school. And... Yeah, it was quite surprising how much the kids knew. And the one thing you can't kind of teach kids is to kind of not be kids. So even if they were probably trained in a lot of other things, you just saw it in their eyes when they were talking about football or when I said I was a football player and when I was talking about sports or traveling, you could see their eyes was lighting up and they were getting engaged. So you could see that they were authentic. So I think the biggest lesson in that was to realize that the narratives that are being taught, especially when it's politically linked, we should be very careful in believing that as our truths. And especially if we are to judge 27 million people that live there, right? So Norway has five, so it's a big country. 27 million in North Korea. Yeah. That's a lot of people. Yeah, wow. A lot of people don't know. So that's, and it's a big country, beautiful one as well, with a lot of mountains and stuff like that. Same with Afghanistan, obviously. I lived there a year, so I know a lot more about Afghanistan than I do about North Korea. So <clears throat> there I was met with an incredibly warm culture. It, it's quite, it does something to you when you are in a refugee camp where you as the organization, Doctors Without Borders, give them the food and you go to see tents and families around in the camp and they offer you food. 
and you're almost embarrassed to say yes. But at the same time, you know, if you don't say yes, they will, they will be offended. So you are giving food to people that barely have food and they offer it back to you. It's just it's a paradox. And then you realize how privileged we are. And maybe potentially, especially in the Scandinavian countries and the US and, and the UK and modern countries, how self-centered everything is. You know, I, I don't know about you, but in the cities in, in, in Oslo, if you visited a friend when you were like 15 years old and they were supposed to have dinner, they only bought three chicken fillets, right? So if you were visiting your friend, they would be like, yeah, we're having dinner now. So you could go home, you can come back later, mm. or you can wait in the room, right? Yeah. <laughs> and then the countryside where I'm from or in Afghanistan, that would be ludicrous. You know, people would, mm. of course, they would share. Then they would cut all the chickens in half and there would be six chickens, right? So, <laughs> so it's, it's a very kind culture. Uh, of course, you have uh, massive terrorism. I sadly lost colleagues in Afghanistan when I was there and when I wasn't, uh, both to Taliban and to American forces. So obviously a war, uh, you lose people. And I've and seen, this is of with, course... You said colleagues of doctors without borders, is that...? Yeah, I was there were... when they bombed wow. the Kunduz hospital. That was the world-famous news when the Americans bombed the, our hospital. So there was a lot Why of people. Why did they do that? Dying. Very good question <clears throat> that uh, we don't really fully understand. They had their excuses and uh, we have our thoughts, but um, this is war. This is basically what I learned is that in war, there probably isn't any heroes and villains like we are taught. There, war is the villain. You know, war can turn ordinary people into villains. So mm -hmm. most of the people that I've met in the hospitals that have, were Taliban soldiers or that was American soldiers or that was soldiers in any form, they all had their own narrative of who was right and who was wrong. And they all had a narrative of someone they had lost, someone that the other side had killed and that there were vengeance involved, which is what we're taught in film as well, right? The, through Hollywood movies, like we're rooting for the guy who lost his brother, who like runs around halfway the world to kill the people who killed his brother, which is it's a very strange thing to teach children because that's obviously how you start a war is continuing to killing people that have done bad to you and then so on. So... <clears throat> I got my perspectives quite nailed to the wall because nothing is really black and white. I've met kindness from Taliban soldiers, which you wouldn't have imagined when you went there. They're human beings as well. Obviously, they've done horrible things. Uh, many of them, not all of them, but many of them have. And that's something that they will have to stand for in terms of justice. But they were kind to me when I met them. So, and American soldiers killed my colleagues. So that's also a fact. So whatever the reason was. So it was a tough lesson to carry because it kind of twists your, your simple mindset of how the world looks in and shatters it. Like it's much easier believing in, in heroes and villains, right? Then the narrative is easy. Yeah, something comes to mind there. Um, half of my family is from Germany and... Um, it's 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 a 
it's a narrative that Germany and then the Nazis were vilified. And what comes up often, or not, not too often, is Soviet Union. But it was never really spoken about, but how much more people were actually killed under that ruling than than by the Nazis. And a lot of it was just in-house. They killed their own people. Um, but in in that culture, you didn't have you didn't have a choice. Um, my grandfather and pretty much my entire German family on the, on the the male side, they had to enroll in the war. And my grandfather joined when he was eighteen, and he was um, he was doing Morse code, uh, and he was put in some of the most um, you can see uh, say extreme. Um, battlefields from um, the ones in France to uh, Stalingrad we almost froze to death and, and a lot of his his um, and for those who know the, this the history uh, the German forces almost that was one of the pivotal battles in the entire World War two um, because Germany was um, progressing on many fronts and then they were not ready for the uh, the Soviet winter and many of the uh, German forces um, had to retrieve uh, or they froze to death. My grandfather was one of them. And um, as, as you said, when you become part of war, everyone has a narrative. And majority of the times during World War II, you're just forced into do something. And if you don't, you get shot, you get killed by your own people. You don't have a, you don't have a choice. And um, you can always point fingers and, and say everyone is wrong. Um, but at the end of the day, we're all human beings trying to do the best that we can. Uh, and it's just how do you how do you not do the thing like an eye for an eye and the world goes blind? How do you how do you not how do you not hold grudges and, and, and keep on holding on to things that the other person did? Because it's, it's only going to lead to destruction and death. Um, what eventually ended up happening was he um he saw for example one of his close friends get this is a strange situation where he was he was backed up into um he was split in half because someone backed up with 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 a truck in him um he they lost on a battlefield and he had to cover himself with bodies and he was able to survive in one of those instances um because they thought he was dead and he he refused um, to take orders to go in one way and uh, one direction and I'm, I'm surprised that they didn't that he, he didn't get disciplined but the entire company got um, got ambushed and killed and he survived and, and there are all these things that eventually he got he got captured he was in a, a uh, prison camp and uh, because he could draw he was able to get cigarettes and um, that he traded for for food and he eventually survived and luckily enough it was Americans who captured him not Russians because he'd probably be dead and uh, he then at the end turned into a um, American guard um, and and it's these he died early because he was so traumatized by so many of the experiences and he couldn't stop talking about it and he never fully healed um and and it's what you're saying right now 
that's why I'm bringing it up. It, it's so much of this is causing, you don't know who's right and who's wrong. And we all get told, and what you said from an early age, and it was the same with me, we all get told this narrative, this story, that how things always are, but it's never fully the actual truth. And it's all just a perception on what the world is. And it's always, you got to keep asking questions. Like you kind of keep on being curious and listening to your own voice, the voice that doesn't use words and, and really just tuning into, um, and, and just accepting and listening to that. Everyone has beauty inside of them and everyone has something to share. It doesn't matter who you are or where you come from. Um, yeah, so I, uh, that comes to me very strongly as you share this. And I'm so incredibly grateful that you're sharing this. And even from, from the, there's one thing I wanted to share because you got me in tears um, earlier when, when you were 12, 13 years old and, and you were thinking of um, committing suicide. And I remember similar feelings, um, never taking it to, to that degree that you did. Um, but my father, he... Um, it's the same thing. He was not there when I was, um, from two years old, they split apart my parents and he, <clears throat> we grew up with my mother on the countryside, uh, on the island in Gotland, Gotland. And, um, it was a similar thing. Uh, and yeah, it was, uh, very, very different. And sometimes because I was open and more vulnerable and kind and thoughtful. I was called gay too. And, and it's like you said, it's like, <laughs> and, and it was always my outlet and like yours, I, my outlet was, I wasn't that particularly good at soccer. And then I found basketball and basketball was my outlet. And that's when I found my escape and found my worth. And really that is one of the core pillars, um, why I'm here today in the United States, because I fell in love in that culture and that that way of connecting to something greater. And that is taking me, like you said, I was fascinated by globes and traveling. And um, um, now coming back from Mexico uh, two days ago, it, it, it does something very special, even though like, I'm, I'm very, I'm very, I'm, when it comes to not traveling too much and not for, for because of all the pollution that the, the airplanes have, I think there's a lot to say to just go into different countries um, and, and seeing and experiencing something completely different and seeing not, not staying in all inclusive resorts, but actually going out on the countryside and renting your own car or going to places that you not necessarily would and taking sometimes the back roads um, and seeing some of these homes that were literally built on uh, wood sticks and there's trash everywhere. And the roof, it, it's barely standing up because it's such a poorly built construction. But sometimes you see the purest happiness there. And that's incredible. Um, and I'm sure you have so many stories of that. And sometimes the people with the least amount of things are the happiest uh, and we fail and, and it feels like and that's why I've, I've really stepped into minimalism is because I've realized the more things I have the more I outsource my happiness and the more I'm controlled by outside 
forces and the same with my performance and it's a love-hate relationship because the performance like you said how we recovered how you made you recover faster and you always had a goal for me um that keeps pushing me forward and that's really what it comes comes what it's all about it's it's having that how do you have that love relationship and that awareness relationship with your performance and for me the deepest part was always um showing that i was good enough for my father that i deserve his love like that <laughs> like yeah it's it's that i'm 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 worthy of your love and that's something i'm now i'm aware of it and it's not going away and i'm just harnessing it as this like i know it's working on that self-love working that i i love myself and i know my father loves me even though it's such a deep wounding um and using that as you're doing in ways of sharing with the world um just love in a different way yep and <clears throat> thank you for sharing as well it's um it is it's kind of strange just before i went to afghanistan like i said after singapore i went into the first time i realized that my father that i hadn't seen since i was 15 years old was still the one driving the narrative of my life which was <clears throat> why it was important for me to do something about it so I kind of went into myself and I was challenged by my mentor to to really dig into it and go back in my life and look at all the big decisions I had made and really be honest with myself why did I go that direction and that's when I realized the things that I'm sharing now that I was always taking the most difficult decision or option to prove that I was good enough no matter if i wanted to do it or not no matter if option two or three was more appealing to me i still took the most challenging one because i wanted to prove whatever challenge i could do it and <clears throat> when i realized that i started working on forgiving my father for for whatever he had not done basically not been there for me I wanted to say that i wasn't his in the beginning fighting with my mom not paying child support, uh, psychologically abusing me and my brother much more and not being there for my other half siblings and all the alcoholism and all the things that I went through. And <clears throat> that's when I realized that forgiveness is never about the other person because I carry the narrative of thinking that he doesn't deserve to be forgiven. So as long as I keep that, I'm punishing him and I'm punishing him because I'm told the narrative that if someone hurts you, you should punish them. And suddenly when I realized that that makes no sense at all, first of all, he doesn't even know that I'm punishing him, whatever I'm doing here. And that the only one being hurt is myself. So I realized that forgiveness is for me so I can move forward. And that's when I contacted him. This was just before I went to Afghanistan. I tried to send him a couple of text messages. I found his number and I got no reply. And then suddenly just one cold January night, I was walking home from school. I just called him and he took up the phone. And after realizing that it was his son, it took a while for him to realize that. Then 
I basically told him that I forgave him and I meant it. And then I told my own biological father about the last 12 years of my life in 20 minutes, which is a very weird conversation to have. And then asked him a little bit about his life and said that I wanted to forgive him to, to be able to move on and for myself. And then I hung up after like uh, 40 minutes and he felt fantastic in the sense of it felt like a true achievement, a much bigger achievement than all the other things that I'd done because I faced my biggest fear and that was whatever he represented. He represented, like you said yourself, the one love that I never got, but I felt that I deserved. And suddenly he couldn't take it away from me anymore because I was free in the sense of I forgave him. I, I forgave the wound he had in me. He has no hold in my decisions anymore. So that's what I brought with me to Afghanistan. And I think that was why it was so much easier for me to be objective in a war and realize that the narratives that we carry, they are not true. They, they are never black and white. History is a selected point of stories to again create a narrative. American history of the Second World War and German history of the Second World War and Scandinavian history of the Second World War in eighth grade, for example, is completely different. But it's the same war. So they have different narratives. And the whole point of that is that <clears throat> we should be curious of the people we meet. And like you say, the more things you see with your own eyes in, that can help you to be grateful for where you are, but also hopeful and determined to create something that you want for yourself, both in terms of life and, and family. So that's kind of what I did going into Afghanistan. And I realized that this wasn't for me as well. I realized I was still semi-driven by this need to prove myself. And when I came back after a year, I was obviously quite impacted. And going through Kunduz, the experience there, where all of us in Afghanistan went through the same. We all lost colleagues in this bombing of the hospital. We were all deprived from the truth, thinking that we were safe because we had these white jerseys. We were protected by working in a hospital. Suddenly this wasn't true anymore. And <clears throat> I started asking myself, why doesn't anyone talk about their problems when they're having a tough time? Because we weren't talking about it at all. It was just a little bit here and there, a little bit in the surface, but most people went into avoidance strategies of working, drinking, doing training, coping strategies, and no one really shared how they felt. And I look back at my life and I realized that I didn't do that when I was in Singapore. I lied to my mom and my dad of how, how bad it was because I knew they couldn't afford to come. And my mom has a flight of flying, so fear of flying, so what was the point? The same when I was 13, didn't tell anybody how I felt because I was supposed to deal with it myself, right? I didn't think the people around me could help. I thought I was the only one feeling like that. And that's when suddenly the answer to the big question I had in Singapore came, and that's what, what am I good at? And I realized that I've always been good at getting people to open up, 
getting people to feel safe because I have been the one that they have come to to talk when I was a kid. That's why I was bullied for being gay. So I had a lot of female friends and the, the people that was a bit uh, bullied or had a tough time, they came to me to, to share and to get support, like you said, kindness. So I started thinking like, imagine if we had a library where we could learn from other people in the same way we did as kids, where you learn from cousin or a grandfather or a grandmother or an aunt. Imagine if we had that in life, like someone that could actually teach you, okay, so how do you overcome this burnout? How do you deal with this depression? How do you deal with being in a country of war and coming back to Norway in May, where everyone is sitting in the park and having the time of their lives and they're complaining because next week it will start to rain? How do you deal with that? That's almost impossible unless you talk to someone that have done it before you or that you just try. But then if you just try, the chance of this potentially going badly is quite big. So I started Googling, looking for if there was something like that out there. I looked at YouTube, found some things here and there, but nothing really concrete. And that's where I realized, wait a minute, maybe we should make it. And maybe we should try to show the world what I see, which is that we human beings, we are the same and we are shaped from our experiences not from where we are from not our genetics not our religion not the culture all the excuse my language bullshit that we are being told we are shaped by the things we go through because you and me we can connect over the same situation of not having a father that loved us in the beginning and that took us into sports and that took us into having a problem with self-worth being connected to performance. And suddenly you and I could have talked for a week about the same things, even though I never met you before now. So that doesn't make any sense because you're from a different country. You had a different life path to me. You, like Everything is different. But still, we could have super connected over five minutes. And that's <clears throat> when I started the human aspect in 2016. And I, I grabbed a friend who had no camera experience <laughs> and we went to the streets of Oslo and we started interviewing people in the streets of Oslo that we have never met for something they have never heard about to talk about the toughest challenge they have met in life. So again, <laughs> an ultimate challenge hmm. that I love. And, and we and said to ourselves... Really quick, for yeah, anyone who doesn't know, <laughs> it's one thing to do that... <laughs> <laughs> to do that in Norway, <laughs> it's a challenge because yep. Norwegians are not the most open people, especially when it comes to strangers. Um, and if you That's ask true. them that question, um, I've, I've even, let, let me put things in perspective. I've tried to ask people in the middle of Stockholm for directions and people walk past me and ignore me because they don't want to talk to me. And that's asking for directions, asking yep. them this question in Norway. Yeah, I think you get the point. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> thanks for the perspective. That is true. So that's why it was an ultimate challenge. And after a week, we got 15 interviews and I shared it with a friend <clears throat> or a lot of friends and I asked them for their feedback. And <laughs> a friend of mine that was a journalist came back to me and he said, <clears throat> is this a joke? You know, you get a little bit offended. You're like, what do you mean? This is a joke. He said, 
have you interviewed your cousin and you're pretending that you don't know him? And I said, what, what, what do you mean? He said, this is incredible. He said, I've never seen anyone or anything like it that is that open where it's strangers. It's like you have to do something about it. And he gave me a long list of all the things we had done wrong on video <laughs> and on sound and all the other things that we couldn't, couldn't do. But at least he told me that you have to do something about it. And that's when I realized that this is a purpose. This is something that I'm good at for the reasons of me being me, not in terms of performance. This is just something that comes natural. And that's what felt more right. <clears throat> and then, of course, I had another mission for Dr. Suda borders to Syria uh, or to border of Syria and Turkey. So I brought the camera and I started the organization at the same time. And I did 10 interviews there as well, of course, with Syrians in, in a very complicated context of the Syrian war. And I went back to Norway and we launched it together with a company here in Oslo that did pro bono built the whole site that loved the idea. And suddenly, four months later, <clears throat> not even that, three months later, we launched the first life experience library in the world. And very quickly, <laughs> it kind of uh, took some traction like most new ideas can do. And suddenly I realized I have to do this full time. So already in December, 2016, I told Doctors Without Borders that I didn't want a new mission and uh, that I was doing this full time. So then I just uh, went into it and started interviewing more and more people and getting people into my team. So today, four years in, we have had more than 550 people that have been interviewed. We've had 100 people to our Norwegian podcast, and we've had probably 100 to 150 different companies that have offered pro bono services. And of course, we've had around 300 uh, advisors that have helped in the project uh, with, with professional hours. So it's a massive <clears throat> kind of group effort to get the human aspect to where it is today. And I think we have reached around 80 million people uh, in, in the last four years. You said 150 pro bono projects with companies. Did I hear that correctly? Yeah. What does yes. that look like? <laughs> Good question. I realized this is kind of a, it's not a secret, but it's a, it's a different way of looking at things. I was told when I went into the entrepreneurial side of things that you have to have an, a problem you have to define it you have to find your solution and then you have to create the pitch and then you have to pitch for money so that you can do it right but for me <clears throat> i'm a little bit more of a, a doer so i semi-defined the problem that wasn't so important for me i have the the idea plus minus and i just did it I wasn't so into making a pitch because I didn't feel I need one. So mm -hmm. I just made it because it was so new that to try to explain to people what you're going to do when it doesn't even look like something, it's almost impossible. So instead I just built it and I put it straight into a live version, an MVP that was live. And the beauty of that is that instead of trying to pitch something from a slide and that is a mock-up, I pitched something that was live that already started getting statistics and that already started getting input. So now when we do an analysis, we have data from 
the 22nd of December 2016, instead of two years after that, when we, if we had followed the, the lean business model, for example, then we would have waited two years before we launched. So <clears throat> then instead of looking for money, which can be difficult, even in Norway, you know, people probably think that uh, there's money lying around on the streets. That's obviously not like that. A lot of Teslas, though, every time I go there. <laughs> That's true. And I guess it's the same as in Silicon Valley in the U.S. as well. Even though you have a good idea and a good pitch, it's not like investors are just uh, sleeping off the street and handing out uh, dollar bills, right? Mm -hmm. So I realized that it's easier to go to companies and give them a good idea and ask them if they want to be part of it. Because... Companies are just human beings as well. So there is always people there that will kick off on an idea that has a massive knowledge level and that can offer you time. That can say, yes, we can build a website. Yeah, we can give you a communication strategy. Yes, we can help you with social media. Yes, we can do this, we can do that. And <clears throat> suddenly we build things much faster than what was normal, whatever that is. And we saw that that was a very efficient method. So for us, suddenly we had managed to get, you know, millions uh, in support, not money. So we were still working for free, like most entrepreneurs have to do in the beginning. But we were building a product that was at a much higher level than what was normal. So when we were walking around, we were still helping people in the beginning, even in the first months, we were helping people. So... <clears throat> Suddenly, we, when we got to 2017, we had a full-blown product with very good data. And we continued on from 2017 to 2019. And suddenly, we found ourselves in the end of the year, last year, we had had users in every single country in the world, which is crazy. Uh, and of course, we are a free mental health tool. And today... This is uh, difficult to measure, but today we think that we potentially are the largest free digital mental health tool in the world. And this is incredible because it's still built on basically pro bono services and volunteer time. Even though I'm full time, I'm still, I'm still not a fully uh, employed person in the sense of salary, <laughs> in sense of time for sure, 200%. But in sense of salary, not so much. And we have a 50 people team, but it's only 16, 17 people that are still uh, paid. And of course, that is, is changing now. But that wouldn't have ever been possible without the strategy that we chose and without being a foundation and without positioning us in a way where we, we cared about helping people we were not so into following a rule book because I normally say to people that want to learn how to give talks and, and speeches um, that I've done a lot. And um, I was lucky enough to be a speaker coach at TEDx Portugal. And then a guy told me like, oh, so how can I, how can I learn? Which books should I read? Which YouTube videos should I watch, right? <clears throat> and I said, you will never speak like TED if you read the book talk like Ted because Ted learned to talk like that. There is no Ted, but the person that they're talking about learned to talk like that. And then they wrote the book after 
I can now share you a lot of experiences and make me sound like this super clever guy coming with a recipe of how to build something from scratch. But that was never the plan along the way here. So what I try to tell people is to learn how to be a really good speaker, you have to speak and you have to dare to challenge yourself and dare to be dynamic because there's no one, two, three, become a speaker. There's no one, two, three, become a successful entrepreneur. Reading the book of Steve Jobs is not going to help you build Apple because Steve Jobs didn't know how he built Apple when he did. The same with, with all the other people who have done it. They wrote the book after. Mm. So it's much more important to find what you are good at, what you're passionate about, because when you do and you dare to push into that, like I have done and so many other people have done, both Steve Jobs and the other people I was mentioning as well, that's when things can start to happen. And then maybe one day you will write a book, but that will be for the future. So if someone asks me for advice, I spin a question back to them and I ask them, what are you good at? And what makes you forget about time when you do it yeah. and do more of that. Mm -hmm. And then of course, dare to let go of thinking that performance is your value. Your value is you, not your performance. And you are what I call your human aspect is all the experiences you've been through. Today, I'm a leader that have a background in top level sports, in international shipping and business, and in humanitarian sector. I was a rescue diver. I'm a countryside kid with a working class background. All of these things is, is building blocks to who I am, am today. Plus minus, of course, they're both the good, the good and bad. But there's no book that can teach you to become Jimmy or Steve Jobs. There is just you need to start writing your own book. And then I can't wait to read it when we, when we go there, <laughs> right? <clears throat> Wow, um, I, I'm just loving everything you're saying, and it's it's profound in a way that you're just. It's so refreshing. Um, it brings so much clarity to, and it just makes me feel at ease. And it's it's one of the realizations that I came to last year. Um, I was in a mastermind, and I'm in constantly reading these books and listening to podcasts and seeking for answers and looking up to people. And, and the biggest thing that came to me is, is stop asking questions and looking for others for answers. The answers were always, and I've always been within and listen to the voice that doesn't use words because we all have what we need inside and we don't need to have someone else to validate us. Like we were always just, amazing and perfect the way we are. And we all have our unique experience and no one, it's not about comparison. It's just about accepting, realizing, being grateful and loving who you are and everything that you've been through. And there's no one who can ever replicate the uniqueness that you carry and the energy you carry and what you can share with this world. And the more we embrace that and more we love that and truly own that and just share that, I think the more of a beautiful experience we can have, there's a saying by Joseph Campbell is, if you know your path step by step, it's not your path. And, and that's truly, I mean, a way that what you're describing here too. Um, and a big, big thing for me is how do you step into 
your authentic truth and start being curious um, and, and yep. taking risks and taking chances. And that, that brings me back to your entire business model. And what I've been looking at is other models. It's always, especially being in Silicon Valley, it's all about startups. It's all about pitch decks. It's all about, well, you need to reach out to these venture capitalists. You need a, this is the programmatic way you need to do things. This is where your slide deck should look like. These are the steps that you need to follow. I'm like, wow, this is, <laughs> excuse my language, fuck this. Like, I, I, it feels so um, box-like. It feels fake in a way. I'm like, this is not, I, I can't force a creation to take place because this is what it's been done in the past. Like, it's forcing a step-by-step -step process. And, and like you said, I kind of know, I know step, like plus minus what it is and how it needs to take form. Um, and, and then I saw and in this and I was researching so many different companies and I saw all these subscription models and then I came to your site. I'm like, wait, they don't have a revenue model. Like this is the most genuine message that I've come across. I, I can't even like ever. And there is no revenue model. Like how the hell do they make this work? And, and, and it's, and I'm like, wow, this is, this is such an incredible gift to the entire world. Um, and, and it completely changed my perception of what, what reality is and what is possible. And, and like you're saying right now, you're working full time, but you're not getting paid full time. And going back to, and there are a few questions that came up. And one was when you, so when you left Doctors Without Borders and you simply went into these companies and they were so compelled by the message that you had to share, they're like, wow, let us help you with this. Thank you for coming to us. Is that what happened? Yeah, and of course you need to know some strategy. I was um, <clears throat> I was head of uh, negotiations, and you know I was working in shipping, in the mm. most you know competitive company in the world at the time. So, an example of one of the things that I did is that you have to, of course, both carry the message and it has to be authentic and it has to be real. This is, you know, talk like Ted and all of that. But as long as it's authentic and it's real and you can present something that's understandable, you're you're on a good way. So, but what I did, for example, to get companies to, to build the site was that I did research, which are the biggest companies. And I went to one of them and I had a meeting. I knew they were too busy. I probably knew that they wouldn't say yes. That was fine. I just wanted to pitch it and I wanted the name of the of the boss there. And I got the name of him. I met him, <clears throat> pitched to him. He said it was a fantastic idea. He gave me some names and he really liked it. But he said, you know, we, we, we don't really have capacity right now. We, we wish we did, but we don't. And then I looked, who is the competitor here? Who is the companies that want to grow? Then I went into them as well. And I said, ah, you know, we pitched for them. They were super excited. And they were like, ah, we don't know if we can do this, but we will get back to you, right? <laughs> and then, then you know, they will never get back to you. So I then told them when I left, I said, ah, oh, I was just visiting XX, the name of the boss of the big company that I knew that they aspired to be. And I said that, yeah, they, they will... <clears throat> give us uh, an offer uh, today and then we will look into and we're talking to xxx the two other companies and then we will decide i said so showing people that you have options and of course also showing people that if they don't give you an option it's not really a problem because you have other people so you're creating a, a need for them to want to win 
suddenly they want to be the one who have this project. They're saying, oh, so the big one is wanting this project and I want it because I want to grow. And I think it took 20 minutes after I left that uh, competitor's office and they called me and they said that they had sent me an offer. And that's the offer we took. And it was also the only offer we had. What, so when you said you got an offer, what, what would that look like? Like, what would you give them? Like, I know they would give you something, but what would you give them? Of course, it's the name of building the site. Uh, of mm. course, uh, they will always be part of our story, which is a narrative and experience to some of their people and engagement. You know, uh, today we're talking about pro-social motivation. And like, uh, and all the kids are talking about purpose. They're like, oh, I don't want to work for a company unless you give me purpose. And of course, giving purpose to every single company in the world is a bit tricky, especially if you're a web design company and all the things you're building websites for God knows what, for oil companies and all kinds of things. And suddenly you can offer to a person that spends 95% of their time building something for money. And you say, here, you have a fantastic project with mental health that's building a free live library that can help people around the world. 5% of your time. Suddenly I want to work for you instead because I don't want to work for the competitor where I'm not given any feel good projects. So now I'm using my skill sets as a web designer, building something that I'm proud of. And I don't even care of getting credits for it. I will always know that I built part of what is helping people today and that was the story we told them as well so then they gave us an offer of the number of hours of course that they were willing to put into this and then of what we had to do of course there's a lot of work that our team had to do to make it as easy as possible for the design agency and of course the branding <clears throat> so we would of course thank them we would and social media and stories so market placement but genuinely they helped us because they wanted to they genuinely worked overtime because they believed in the project and so did the big company as well they just didn't have the time so that's what comes when you have a true authenticity in something you share and of course if it helps the world you can't come with a brilliant idea that's going to make you a billion dollars just for the fun of it uh, with oil, for example, that wouldn't be that happily received. But if you came with a fantastic idea of building the new battery that will save battery capacity all over the world and still make a billion dollars, maybe people would join you, right, to be able to be part of the journey. People don't always need something back in payment um, because payment is so many things. And motivation, pro-social and inner motivation is hard to come by. Sure. Yeah. So going back to more of the, we all need to eat, have roof over our head and so forth. How have you been able to solve that during your, your time here with the human aspect and even the people who work uh, voluntarily, how are you able to solve that financial um, requirement for, 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 for all of, all of you and yourself? Step one is obviously coming from a working class background, knowing how to live cheap. And I've lived in Afghanistan and I've traveled a lot. So you basically have to sacrifice a lot of things that is around you. 
And for me, coming from the perspective that I do, I don't even see them as sacrifices, you know, like never going out, uh, only eating at home, eating cheaper food, uh, maybe going uh, to friends, uh, maybe buying, you know, on sale and stuff like that. So you have to really lower your expenses to a level of minimum, bare minimum. Maybe you're lucky and you have some friends that can house you for a while. I had a lot of friends that supported me. I had a hairdresser who cut me for free. I had a friend who <clears throat> helped me with another service. Uh, I had a friend that uh, was so happy with my cooking. <laughs> so she paid wow. for the merchandise and or for the ingredients and I cooked wow. like uh, once a week. <laughs> so, so you have to be creative and, and of course, I had savings from 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 the shipping, seven years in shipping that I was willing to use. Uh, obviously, that's a risk to take as well. And then I did uh, coaching on the side because I had been uh, a high-level uh, sports coach for about 10 years at this point for top athletes uh, after I quit playing myself. So, and I started doing talks. I did make a lot in the beginning, but just you know, $100 here, $50 here, small things, but still money in that uh, point. And then, of course, <clears throat> you have to slowly start uh, sharing the little income that you get in a company. So we always shared pretty fairly in the human aspect. So we still do from month to month. Uh, everyone that is involved, they know the effort that they put in and they also know then uh, we will share what the remains with the people there. So everyone here has sacrificed enormous amount of hours. And then of course, I have some politicians here in Norway now that I tried to get a meeting with and, uh, and the guy said that he was busy. So he sent me a picture of his schedule and uh, you know, kind of proving he was busy, I guess. <clears throat> and then I looked at it and I was like, I don't think I worked that little since I was 15 years old. <laughs> so, so I was like, not that he wasn't busy. He was busy. That's not what I'm saying. But I've always worked a lot. I've never just had one thing. I've had full-time school and 50% uh, job or 100% job and 50% school, you know. So I'm used to pushing it. I'm, and I haven't had a vacation day, a full day of vacation, I haven't had in four years, which is standard story for a lot of entrepreneurs. So it's not that that's special, but that's also something you have to sacrifice. And of course, if I had a family and a kid, I wouldn't be able to work as many hours that I've done. And if I did, I would have been a very lousy father. So you have to take consideration with the things around you, of course. So whenever your situation change, if you have children or kids, you have to adapt. So if that happened, I probably would have had to have a part-time job or work less or get more people in or, but now slowly things are, are getting better. So the, the most thing I'm grateful for is all the incredible people that have supported this project, which makes me not give up. I think I almost want to give up every day. You know, I'm frustrated and happy. My entire life is a roller coaster every day. So I remember saying from the stage in TEDx Lisbon, I said, uh, if you think being an entrepreneur is just fun, I dare you to try it because it isn't. <clears throat> so for me, 
is basically I continue this journey because so many people believe in us. So I basically feel that I can't, <laughs> I can't quit. And I, I've always seen the vision and I know that this is going to help millions of people around the world, potentially billions at one point. But I don't know when the, it will grow big enough for that. And of course, what keeps me up at night is knowing that I have so many people in my team that is not fairly paid, mm -hmm. which is my responsibility to make sure that they will be at one point. So that's also a motivational driver. And for myself as well, you know, it's not like you spoke about minimalistic. Obviously, I have turned minimalistic out of need mm. <laughs> myself. But <clears throat> of course, I want to enjoy the things that I like in life as well. I love to travel. Travel is going to be much more expensive now when Corona is finished, 100%. And the same, I love food. Uh, luckily for me, I'm good at cooking it. So <laughs> it's a little bit cheaper, but still good ingredients are expensive. And because of my back injury, I have to wear a certain amount, certain specific sneakers and, you know, everything costs money. So I have no like strange thought that I will be living off love and, uh, and hugs for the rest mm. of my life. Right. So I'm, I'm definitely working towards a fair payment, but the people that we have here, a good way of testing if your people is motivated it's obviously taking them through the, the challenge that I've done. Because if you work here for years, some of our volunteers have been here for, for years, from four to, to one year, then you're motivated. So then if you manage to put money on top of that, which we have done over the years, so now some of them are fairly well or fairly paid, now you see motivated people because they built their own working place. And they have believed in it from the beginning. And they have sacrificed from the beginning. So uh, it's basically back to the same thing. You will always be able to do it if you want to. You maybe have to do a side job. You maybe have to be creative. Maybe have to live at your mom's house if that's possible. I, I was lucky enough to not do that. Hmm. Um, <clears throat> but it's really... The same creative hustle that gets you to become a good entrepreneur is uh, the one <laughs> that gets you through the personal economy part as well, I guess. Mm. So what does the revenue come from today and what does the future look like so you and your employees can get to that more mm. abundant financial state as well? Not yep. just inner abundance, but yeah. We've also been looking at uh, designing a new business model, like we said. So we are a foundation. In Norway, a foundation means that all the money you make will have to go back into the vision. It doesn't mean that you can't make money. The biggest private school in Norway is a foundation and they pay their teachers the highest salary of all teachers in the country. But it always have to go back into what they're doing so into education so we have them as a kind of inspiration and now we're looking at different models of course you have grants coming from the government coming from municipality coming from other countries uh, which will always be a good source we have private donations and of course <clears throat> company donations going into csr so community social responsibility will always be 
a potential income source and have been. We have partners. So for example, a partner, uh, an organization in Norway working for eating disorder partnered up with us to build uh, and, and make more interviews about men and eating disorder, which is an extra stigmatized subject. And then they paid us uh, to make more interviews about that. So we have partnerships uh, for that. And then we're looking into creative models where we collaborate with companies who want to help uh, with mental health, which is, of course, sadly a, a trend now. Uh, I wish it wasn't, but uh, of course, it's, it's good for organizations like ourselves, but it's sad that it's for a bad reason. And we are selling uh, workshops and talks about how to deal with mental health in your organization or in your company or in your school. So mm -hmm. that is also a good um, or a good, it's a, it's a fair income source at the moment. So we have different legs that we can stand on, which is also part of the strategy. You should never put all the eggs in one basket and all that. So the future is where these will grow, especially getting support from the government and the municipality is something that needs to grow. The CSR with companies needs to grow. And of course, donation from ordinary people as well will be a strong leg to stand on because if everyone that used the human aspect the last four years gave us a dollar, uh, we would be really well off, to put it that way. So it doesn't need to be a lot from ordinary people. It can be a little. Can, and we're building the system for that now so that you can uh, donate. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and subscription nice. donations, like nice. a dollar a month or something yeah. like that. Yeah, that's amazing. Which is, you know, what normal humanitarian and, and foundations do. So this is known models around the world. Yeah. What um, I think it's fascinating what you're bringing up with uh, that there is a foundation in Norway for men with eating disorders, and um, it usually comes up that, and it's it's far greater than I have expected. Um, so my wife has gone through it um, with bulimia and but it can, but it shows up different for a lot of men. Uh, and I saw one of the videos on, um, Instagram there's the same thing there. It's this, um, perception that you always, well, especially, well, I don't know you need to have muscles, right? You need to be big. You need to be, you need to look a certain way. And, um, yeah, that's something that, that keeps on coming up for me like that's something that i've struggled with uh i think it's called bigorexia like you never feel like you're big enough and even like my my wife was sharing like hey like you have what was she saying like the best body on the beach and for me i'm so incredibly insecure that i don't feel good enough about myself and i constantly need to even though I, I use working out because it's such a powerful way for me to connect to myself mentally physically um, but it's also a big part is, is the exterior thing. And, and with that comes, I've always eaten a lot, but I'm very particular. And if I don't get enough food, I become anxious because I feel like, oh, I'm going to get skinnier. I'm going to get smaller. And then that is a direct reflection of my worth and my love for myself. Yep. And this is something that is not often or really ever talked about, um, and I'm very grateful that you're bringing that forth. And even with the um, mental health a lot with a lot of men, because there is 
what you were sharing before, like you've never looked into what you really felt like you, you don't express your feelings. And if you bottle up your feelings, eventually that can lead to like, I have no clue what to do. Like, it's better if I just end everything because I, you, you, you're so it's too much. Like you need to have an outlet. And I think that's an incredible way what you're sharing and what you're doing with the human aspects. Um, and I think, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And the important part as well is that you don't, an outlet is short term. An outlet is great for short term challenges. So like a frustrating day, you go have a run. That's an outlet, which is healthy, healthy outlet. And then of course <clears throat> you can uh, eat a beautiful meal or go to the forest, healthy outlet. But when you always try to find an outlet for long-term things, like for example, not being happy with your job yeah. or uh, not being happy with your marriage or whatever is something that is long-term, an outlet is not going to help you. You will have to talk about it and deal with it at one point. It wasn't a healthy outlet for me or for you for that matter to only do sports, right? And, and because we had a problem with self-love and self-worth with our father from childhood, mm -hmm. it needs to be dealt with. And the same with, uh, like you're saying, the, the need of feeling that you have to be big enough. And in my sake, it was that I had to be fit enough. So it was part of my bullying, right? That I was bullied for being, for being chubby or for being fat. And <clears throat> for me, I had similar tendencies. I was you know, always wanting to be looking better, more athletic, more muscles, uh, pushing more. And it was always measured. And of course, that's not healthy going forward. So now, luckily, I'm training because it makes me feel relaxed. It's the one place where my mind can turn off for a little while. So it is important to dare to challenge that. Outlets, healthy, short term. But talking about it and sharing your emotions and looking at your problems uh, a little bit in the way you look at a startup and trying to actually solve them in the sense of, okay, I have to forgive my father. That is a solution. It's a difficult one, but it's a solution. I have to change my career uh, from shipping to something else. It's a very tough choice, but it's a solution. Uh, you have to move from Sweden to the U.S. to build a different life and a different career like you did. It is tough choice, but it is a solution, a long-term one. That probably makes you feel a little bit more confident about yourself than if you were stuck in the island, right? So it's important for... <clears throat> that's kind of what we want people to realize from the human aspect. The interviews is learning from other people you will really realize a few things number one there is not one way into any mental health challenge there's not one way into depression there's not one way into burnout there's not one way into eating disorder and there is not one way out of it either so realizing that there's so many things that can bring you to where you are today where you're struggling with something and there are so many ways that can bring you out like there's no one, two, three, turn into a successful entrepreneur. There's no one, two, three, magically make your challenge disappear. It's the same hard work and effort and sweat and blood and tears that you put into your startup or a relationship or anything else in life. So <clears throat> by looking at other people to find inspiration in real people, not 
a psychologist saying top three uh, tips for depression, which is great as an additional knowledge, but not at the starting point. You need some real inspiration that you can touch, that you can try tomorrow. And that's where, for me, it's always been fascinating to learn from other people. And if I watch 10 interviews about how to deal with the eating disorder, the one that you described, that, that need of feeling that you have to be bigger enough, now you're getting somewhere. Now I've had 10 different people tell you how they dealt with it. You yourself have to decide which of the tips and tricks that they tried do I want to try? And then you have to go out and try, ladies and gentlemen, you know, and then you have to see some of them will fail. Some of them will succeed. And if you continue working, then magically, suddenly you will potentially find a solution or at least a good way to live with it. Because many mental challenges will, you know, my dad won't magically start loving me and become a big part of my life. Hmm. Not necessarily something I want either. So the trauma will be there, but now it's not dominating in my life. Mm -hmm. An eating disorder will probably last for life, but it's not dominating. And then it's not a problem. Then it's just part of who you are. You're just a little bit more motivated to go to the gym. You're just a little bit more careful with what you eat, but that's not a problem. That's not an eating disorder. Right. So that's the, um, the beauty of the library for me, especially now with 500 different people there. And, um, the custom YouTube videos that are these short theme videos about uh, different themes on our YouTube now, mm -hmm. where we have clips from maybe 10 different videos about depression plus a psychologist. So you can kind of learn about depression and, and how to deal with it in like 10 minutes, which uh, is, is a good start for inspiration. So <clears throat> I guess to kind of... <laughs> sum up as well before you probably maybe have some final questions is from my side is curiosity is what really got me moving forward always and to dare to have a positive and solution oriented mindset because no matter what challenge comes your way you can always choose to look at it in a negative standpoint which makes it worse than it objectively is if you break your leg you still break your leg if you think about it or not uh, or you could decide to look at this positively in the sense that i had to stop when i broke my back for the first time in my life i've never reflected so much for those six months before or after for that matter and it was a gift because it changed my life into what it is today if not i would live a different life now so <clears throat> try to see things positively and look for solutions that doesn't mean that you're suppressing your feelings so talk about your feelings feel them recognize them but then try to look for solutions because if you're in them too long then of course the challenge of that is that you will start making trouble and you won't see the possibilities that is out there and of course i always try to challenge myself to be the person i want to be like for example saying yes to this podcast i am a busy person and uh, of course if i now start saying no to a lot of things just because i think maybe it is not uh, 
in my right interest or that I could rather be with my girlfriend or that I could rather do work <laughs> or something like that, then I'm not the person I want to be because I asked mm -hmm. people for help mm -hmm. when I started the human aspect and a lot of people said yes. So if I don't carry, continue doing that and I still want to be a good friend, even though I'm not, I don't have that much time, but when I have time with my friends, I try to give them quality. I try to say yes to as many people as I can if they ask me something specific that I think I can help with. So, you know, I think the world today is so self-centered and that kind of annoys me a little bit. So I really do my best, which I'm not succeeding all the time for sure, to try to make sure that I also contribute back, that I don't just think about the human aspect, no matter how noble the vision is, because that wouldn't be right. So I'm trying to, at the same time that as I'm leading the human aspect, uh, focusing on that, trying to help other projects as well and uh, mentor or give advice or connect people or recommend people or say yes to a podcast with someone that I don't really know which is, mm -hmm. <laughs> is a great way to learn. I'm literally blown away um, by everything that you've shared to hear your entire story and how you're just redefining reality in so many different ways for so many different people. Like it's truly a paradigm shift that you've started and, and the movement that you're creating and, and just how you your reflection here at the very end, um, how, and this is something that came up with my wife and I that we do in our morning, uh, ritual practice. Um, how do you, I practice my values over professing my values. And, um, I can tell that you are, and you're owning up to that. Yeah, you're not perfect, but the more we just see ourselves as right, how can we be conduits and how can we be messengers too of something that that is that can be spread in this world and do good in this world and how can we think more about others too um genuinely that is how i found the most happiness and that's something i also struggle with the most is my selfishness um and and the lesson well. yeah that i'm learning is just how do i look to just to help others so you mean I, there are so many concepts, ideas, everything that you've shared has, has just left me like incredibly full. I feel like I'm going to take days not to do anything, but just let this sink in and, and just tune into inspiration and a whole different aspect of, of how I can evolve the Safina code and, and the way you're sharing it. It's just, you're changing things. And, and whenever you have doubt, holy shit, you have one humongous fan here that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm in awe. I'm in wow. So um, thank you thank for you. what you're doing and thank you for who you are in your journey. Thank you so much for inviting me as well and asking uh, questions. As you realize, um, like my mom said when I was a kid, I'm a, I'm a talker. <laughs> <laughs> so so appreciate mean? that. Yeah. Thank you for sharing as well when you were sharing uh, things from your life as well. It's important for us men, especially to, 
to dare to be role models for those around us, showing that vulnerability is really the new strength uh, mm. for any man, for any woman, for any human, mm. is to dare to be vulnerable because then you allow other people to, to follow in your footsteps and that actually can liberate them from, from their fears. How can anyone find you or the human aspect and how can they support the cause? Luckily for me, I'm the only one in the whole world with my name. So Jimmy Westerheim, you will just find one on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, everywhere. So makes it easy. Lucky with that one. And the human aspect, uh, the same. The human aspect is the only organization of that name. So you will find us on Instagram, Facebook, the website, thehumanaspect.com, which is the actual library and the YouTube channel where you will find these uh, shorter theme videos. We also have a lot of live events, um, Facebook Live and stuff like that, where we have guests. Uh, we had a live event about racism, uh, one about macho culture. So we have uh, depression. So we have where you can learn from other great people. So I guess that's where you can find us. And of course, how you can support our cause is to look at it. And if you like it, then you can share it and help the people in your social circle to potentially find it if this is what they need because it's free everything uh, there is for free so i guess that's the best way you can um, support the human aspect and and of course reach out if you have any idea or anything you think could um, contribute uh, be part of something or a company where you would want a, a talk or maybe your company would want to support in in some way with the either CSR or pro bono, then obviously that would be extremely helpful. That's no doubt. Amazing. Jimmy, thank you incredibly much once again. Thank you for being on. Thank you so much for having me. Just wow. Jimmy is one incredible human being and he just blew me away. Got me inspired to a whole new level. And I am truly appreciative of what he, him, and his team, and the human aspect we're doing in this world. I hope this impacted you as much as it has impacted me. And uh, let's help spread this message. So if you'd be so kind, click subscribe, click follow, leave the five-star review. Even a review, <laughs> that mean the world. And as you can tell, this is healing stuff. So... Let's, uh, let's spread the love. Again, thank you very much for tuning in. You can find all the links to Jimmy's social media, as well as the human aspect and all the links there in, this, in the uh, show notes, as well as to Safina, the podcast, High Performance, the company Safina, as well as in the show notes. I'm sending you so much love. And until next time.